You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during Movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. This episode of The Constant is brought to you by the Whatever Happened To series for the young and easily influenced. Envision a future where our most popular children's books are written by today's Tommy Larens, Dennis Pragers, and Carl Roves. It may sound horrible, but the creators of the Whatever Happened To series have made it hilarious. Like Rolling Together 1984 and Everyone Poops, they've created a series of parody books that boil down for future generations whatever happened to insects, Mexican food, nipples, even colonoscopies, and explain away the end of the world in the most simplistic, unscientific, and frankly, made-up terms. This is weird and devious and brutally funny satire. And the really brilliant kicker is that part of the proceeds from every sale go to a champion cause, including the likes of the ACLU, the Sierra Club, the Violence Policy Center, and Equality Now, in an effort to keep the bleak and surreal prophecies included in their pages from ever coming to pass. For those of you who have discovered John Oliver's Marlon Bundo or Stephen Colbert's Whose Boat Is This Boat?, the Whatever Happened To series is your next step into the future. And if you go to whateverhappenedseries.com slash constant, you can get a $25 e-subscription right now, with $2 of each book going to the champion cause. That's $22 given away to great causes and three measly bucks for the 11 e-books. So go now to whateverhappenedseries.com slash constant to get your deal today. The future will thank you while it still can. Nineteen thirty-two was a tough time. The stock market had crashed three years ago, and unemployment was sitting near twenty-five percent. On top of the economic hit was the recreational one: prohibition, no booze, no money, no fun. Well, no legal booze. There was plenty of alcohol if you went to the speakeasies or if you owned one, like Tony Marino. But even with a black market gin joint in the Bronx. 1932 was still a tough time. On Tony and on his friends, Francis Pasqua, an undertaker, and Daniel Kreisberg, a grocer. Kreisberg's business was barely skidding along, not strong enough to feed his wife and three kids. And Francis Pasqua? Well, they say that death is a recession-proof business, but Pasqua was still feeling the hurt. Yes, 1932 was a tough time, the three friends agreed, one night in the back room of Marino's Bar at 3804 3rd Avenue. The question was, what's to be done about it? You can only water the drinks down so far, you know. Only turn the bruised apples so many ways. 
only stack so many bodies in a grave. Yeah, 1932 was a tough time, and if somebody didn't think of something soon, the grocery, the funeral parlor, the speakeasy, it'd all be closed. In the back room of Marino's, the three chewed and drank and thought and talked. Then, from the front of the bar came the nightly crash of a certain Bowery bum, falling over, soused to his core. The light bulb went off over Pasqua's head. The blacked-out rummy in the front was his eureka moment. He turned to his pals with an idea, a plan not just to save their flagging businesses, but to get them filthy, stinking rich. This is The Constant, a history of getting things wrong. I'm Mark Chrysler. Today's episode, Let's Kill Mike. Why not? It had worked before. A year ago, Marino had ingratiated himself with Mabel Carson, a homeless woman on the streets of the Bronx. Marino had romanced the young woman, known as Betty, and given her an open tab at the speakeasy. At the same time, he and Pasqua took out $800 in life insurance on her. One night, in the early, still-frigid New York spring, he'd gotten her blackout drunk, dragged her back to a boarding house room, stripped her naked, and put her to bed. Then he dumped a bucket of ice water on her, opened the window, and left her to die of exposure. Marino bribed the coroner to list pneumonia as the cause of death and cashed in the policy. Why not work the same trick, but this time on Mike Malloy? It'd be even easier. Malloy was half dead already. Now 60 years or so old, Mike was a firefighter once upon a time, but nowadays he was a tireless, hopeless drunk who worked sporadically as a janitor, collecting just enough to pay his rent and squeeze out whatever drops of whiskey he could at Marino's. His money usually wasn't enough to put him over the alcoholic top, and so Mike would badger the bartender for credit. Once his tab was cut off, he'd make the rounds of the bar, deploying his charmingly incoherent Irish brogue on the patrons, begging for drinks in exchange for the opportunity to watch him trip and tumble. Killing Mike, the three assumed, would be the easy part. They wouldn't need anything as complicated as a bucket of cold water. Just give him ready access to all the booze he could drink and he'd drown himself in it. So they brought Joseph Murray, Marino's bartender, a 27-year-old chemist by trade, into the pact. Murphy's job would be simply to offer Mike unlimited credit on the house. The others would handle the rest. Marino took out not one, not two, but three insurance policies. Not on Mike Malloy, though. At 60 years of age, the premiums for actually insuring him would be cost prohibitive. So instead, they built three double indemnity policies on a fictitious personage by the name of Nicholas Mellory, who was said to be just 45 years old, with Marino, the beneficiary, set to identify the body. It took three months for the group to find insurance agents unsavory enough to look the other way on their very suspicious plan, but in the end, Mike Malloy was worth just north of $3,500, around fifty-seven grand adjusted for inflation. In the course of that three months, a few others got brought into the plan. A couple of regulars at Marino's had caught on, and really, anybody who learned what was up left little choice to the murder trust other than to buy them in. So now, 
In addition to Marino and Murphy and Pasqua and Kreisberg, there were a couple of straight-up gangsters, Joseph Maglioni, Edward Tinier Smith, and Tough Tony Bastone, in addition to Harry Green, a taxi driver. With the full group assembled and the policies in place, it was time for the easy part. Killing Mike. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member? For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day from Movement. Whether your mom is into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, Movement has something she'll love. And right now, everything at Movement is up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale. A watch is a gift that celebrates all the time you spent with mom. And a Movement watch is even more than that. Movement uses industry-leading materials for their fresh modern watch designs, from technically complex ceramics to vintage-inspired style, all for an incredible value your wrist and wallet will both love. And with one-size-fits-all convenience and fast-free shipping and returns, it's a stress-free shopping experience. Save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with Movement. Get up to 50% off site-wide during their Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. For the last few weeks, Malloy had been treated as a pariah at the speakeasy, as his tab racked up without him paying off a penny. But the first night at the plan, Marino welcomed him in warmly. He explained to Mike that there was a price war going on with all the New York speakeasies, and so he was loosening his credit standards and extending to Mike an unlimited line. Malloy, thrilled and gracious, bit hard, sidling up to the bar and ordering whiskey after whiskey until, Murphy said, his arm grew tired from pouring. All the while, the murder trust looked on, trying not to draw Malloy's attention, which obviously became less of a concern as the night dragged on. By closing, Malloy was as drunk as anyone at the bar had ever seen a human being be, and he stumbled out onto the streets. The next time they'd see him, the boys felt assured Mike Malloy would be under a sheet. Instead, when Murphy and Marino opened up the next night, Mike was gamely waiting at the door to go for round two. Again, Murphy poured the broken Irishman into oblivion, and again he returned, asking for more. For a full week, the trust watched and waited for Mike to finally keel over. Hell, he wouldn't even have to die from drink, they thought. All it would take was one hard spill and the frail sucker could crack his head and bleed out in a gutter. There are so many ways to die. Mike, just choose one, for Christ's sakes. At the end of that first week, tough Tony was running out of patience. He told the rest that he was sick of waiting and would just take Mike down to a basement and shoot him. That'd do the trick. But that would cause questions, and they'd forfeit the double indemnity. Mike had to die in some way conceivably accidental. Murphy, the chemist come bartender, had a solution. Antifreeze. 
When the speakeasy opened up that eighth day, there was Mike, waiting to wet his whistle. Murphy poured him three quick shots of whiskey, and then, once he was nice and tight, came the methanol. Malloy pounded down the first shot gladly. All eyes were trained on him, growing wide to see what would happen. After a long moment, Mike signaled for another round. And then another. And another. And another. And another! Six shots of antifreeze later, Mike fell to the floor unconscious. It was three in the morning, and only he and his would-be murderers were left in the joint. Pasqua, the undertaker, walked over to examine the ragdoll body. His heart was still beating, but Pasqua estimated it wouldn't be soon. An hour later, Malloy was still asleep on the floor. At 5 a.m., Mike jolted awake. He looked around, apologized for taking up space on the ground, and asked for another drink. Then he stumbled out into the early morning and headed for home. What the fuck, thought the men as they watched their prey escape once more. Murphy assured them that antifreeze was still, against all appearances, a good plan. They just needed to redouble their efforts. For the next week, Mike drank nothing but methanol, double and triple shots, all day and all night. And every morning he came back, begging for more. Then came the turpentine, then the horse liniment, and then the rat poison. Mike took it all gladly down his gullet and asked for more. It was time to get serious. The men knew that Mike liked oysters, and Pesqua had seen to the funeral of a man who died from eating contaminated ones. So Marino bought some old, rank shellfish, soaked them in wood alcohol, and offered a whole plate to his quarry. Surely, this would finally do the trick. But even after a night spent imbibing poison and chomping on rotten mussels, Mike was still game. Next, Murphy opened up a can of sardines and left them outside for a few days to spoil. But the group was skeptical that Mike Malloy, who'd already eagerly slopped up rat poison and turpentine, could be done in that easy. So they slapped the stinking sardines between bread and dressed the sandwich with metal shavings and carpet tacks. Mike happily gobbled up his free dinner, chased it with some more antifreeze, and made his way back out to sleep it off. The next morning, when Marino's opened, there was no sign of Mike Malloy. The murder trust waited for hours to receive word of his death. But instead, in the late afternoon, in came the sexagenarian Stumblebum, asking for drinks and another delicious fish sandwich. Things were getting desperate and expensive. With each night came more eaten costs in whiskey and antifreeze and turpentine and rat poison and tainted food and nails. And soon they'd have to pay premiums on the three insurance policies. This lush and his stupid will to survive were eating into the profits. How the hell could they put him in the ground? Marino thought back to his first killing caper, Betty Carson. Why not try the same trick on Mike? It was the dead of winter. New York was covered in deep snow and sub-zero temperatures. So the next night, once Mike had conked out on whiskey, they carried him out to Harry Green's waiting taxicab, drove him out to Cortona Park, stripped him of his coat, and threw him into a snowbank. Then, for good measure, they poured ice water over his limp body and packed a foot of snow over it. When the sun came up, Marino walked over to the bar with a spring in his step, sure that this time, Mike was finished. 
But as he prepared to open up, he heard a noise in the basement. No, it couldn't be. But it was. Mike Malloy, completely iced over, had impossibly managed his way back to the speakeasy for shelter. He carped about the cold, but you know what he could use for that? A drink. This was getting ridiculous. No, no, this had passed ridiculous somewhere around the sardine and carpet tack sandwich. Now it was plain fucking absurd. Enough with the wit and subtlety, the killers decided it was time to get blunt. They offered two mobbed-up patrons, John McNally and James Salone, 200 bucks to run Malloy over. The two refused, and the trust doubled their offer. Still, McNally and Salone turned it down. The next night, they once again hooched up Malloy to the point of blackout. Then they loaded him into the taxi again and took him off to an isolated back road. There, they unpacked the wino, stood him up on the street, got a good running start, and drove the cab right for him. Just in the nick of time, Mike flopped over and the car missed him. So the passengers got out, helped him up, and tried again. Once more, Mike managed to stumble his way out of the vehicle's path like a twisted, morbid Mr. Magoo cartoon. The third time, though, they nailed it. Marino and Bastone got out of the car and held Malloy in place while the car worked its way up to 45 miles per hour. At the last second, the two jumped out of the way and the car slammed into Mike Malloy and right over him all four tires. Then, to cross their T's, Green backed up over the codger. Ta-da! Victory. Marino ran over to check on the body, which was laying in the middle of the street, but just then they saw headlights on the road ahead and jumped into the car for a speedy getaway. When they opened the bar, there was no Mike Malloy waiting at the door, or in the basement, or anywhere. He didn't show up the next day either or the day after that. Two weeks went by with no sign of him. But that presented a new problem. How could they collect the insurance money with no body? They searched the obits and police blotters, called around to coroners and undertakers, scoured the crime scene. Maybe he'd survived and made it to a hospital. No luck there either. They couldn't find Mike's corpse anywhere. There was no more time to waste, but Stone found another hobo, and Green ran him over too. But this victim survived, out of the trust's reach in Fordham Hospital. Three weeks after losing sight of their first target, the murder trust had no choice but to resign themselves to failure. They never found out what happened to Mike Malloy, because he was never seen again. Nah, I'm kidding. Three weeks after he went missing, Mike Malloy showed up at Marino's again, looking for a drink. He told the barflies all about how he'd tied on a real dinger a few weeks back and somehow gotten himself banged up and deposited at the hospital. The doctors thought he'd been hit by a car, if you could believe it, and ended up with a shoulder fracture and a severe concussion. He'd been so senseless for a while there, he couldn't even give his name, thus why his pals had been unable to find him in the records. But here he was, back at the speakeasy, no worse for the wear. It'd be great to tell you that this was the happy ending that the crooks and cons of Marino's bar finally learned their lesson and gave up on the whole endeavor. Unfortunately, we're going to have to settle for the actual less happy, but still somewhat satisfying ending.
On February 21st, 1933, Mike Malloy was found dead in a tenement building not far from the speakeasy. Marino and his Confederates had managed to do him in. They soused him up per usual and took him off in Green's cab again, this time to Murphy's place, where Murphy and Kreisberg stuffed a rubber tube in his mouth and connected the other end to a gaslight line. It had taken seven months, 24 premium payments, and at least 40 attempts to finally get the job done right. Pasqua slid 100 bucks to a friend, Dr. Frank Manzella, who marked the cause of death as grip. Then he buried him in a $10 coffin and a $12 plot without so much as embalming him. And the boys went to collect their 30 pieces of silver. Er, $800 of insurance money. The first policy from Metro Life paid out easy enough. Of that 800, four went to Pasqua, the undertaker, and 150 went to Green, the cabbie. Marino and Murphy used their cuts to buy new tailored suits. Then Pasqua headed over to Prudential to cash in on the other two policies. But the agent made a request that threw the whole thing for a loop. He asked to see the body. Er, uh, he's already been buried, said Pasqua. I see, responded the Prudential agent, and called the authorities. The investigation that followed held considerable ironies. For one, the story was too good to keep quiet. In no time flat, nearly all of New York was telling the story of Iron Mike, or Mike the Durable, Mike the Juggernaut, the Rasputin of the Bronx. The point of choosing Malloy as a victim was that he was so perfectly unknown and uncared for. But by killing him, the murder trust had transformed him into a beloved celebrity. On March 18th, Tough Tony Bastone was shot by one of the other conspirators, Joseph Maglioni, and our barman, Joseph Murphy, was brought in as a witness. Between the rumors and the dead gangster, District Attorney Samuel Foley caught a whiff of something funny. He had Malloy's body exhumed for a proper autopsy, where the second irony reared its head. When the pathologist examined him, they easily found evidence of carbon monoxide poisoning. Evidence which would have been done away with had Pasqua not cheated Malloy of his embalming. The day after the ME report, Kreisberg the grocer, Green the cabbie, Pasqua the undertaker, Murphy the bartender, and Marino the proprietor were all charged with first-degree murder. And Dr. Manzella, who Pasqua paid for the counterfeit death certificate, was brought in as an accessory after the fact. Maglioni, who took care of Tough Tony, turned state's witness to avoid execution. John McNally and James Salone, the barflies who'd refused to run Mike down, also cooperated with the prosecution. Faced with all that, Harry Green, the cabbie, also flipped, cutting a plea deal of first-degree assault in exchange for his testimony. The trial was a circus. For their parts, Murphy and Kreisberg each blamed the other for the gas and hose that ultimately did Mike in. Pasqua argued that he was just the undertaker and was simply acting in good faith on behalf of the deceased, unaware of the plot. And all three of them turned their fingers to the dead gangster, Tough Tony Bastone, who they eventually said had forced them into the crime at gunpoint. Tony Marino, on the other hand, tried a different strategy. He pleaded insanity. His attorney called a doctor to the stand to testify that he had been driven out of his mind by syphilis. The jury was unconvinced. On October 19th, 
Just a day after the summation, they found all four of them guilty as charged. Harry Green was sentenced to five years for vehicular assault. Dr. Manzanella was convicted of failing to report a suspicious death. Iron Mike Malloy himself was reinterred after the investigation in a charity plot without a headstone in Hartsdale, just north of the Bronx. Joseph Murphy had his sentence temporarily stayed when it turned up that he was actually one Archie Mott, an orphan who had been found to be mentally unbalanced. He had been committed to and eventually escaped from an asylum in Connecticut, but after significant psychological testing, his request for a retrial was denied, and he was brought to Old Sparky, the electric chair at Sing Sing Prison, on July 5, 1934. A month before, on June 7th, Anthony Marino, Daniel Kreisberg, and Frank Pasqua had also met Old Sparky in a three-for-one execution Thursday. I'll give you one guess how many tries it took to kill him. I'm not going to give you the whole foo-for-all about liking and reviewing and rating because you already know. You're smart and moral and upstanding and your mom is so proud of you. She did ask me to remind you that our Facebook group is facebook.com slash theconstantpodcast and our Twitter handle is at constantpodcast. Special thanks to everybody who made this season possible, especially Emily Altman and Andrew Berg, who say, Welcome to the world, Eleanor Josephine Berg. Also, Andrew Berg wants Mark to acknowledge his misuse of the phrase begs the question. Emily wants Mark to apologize on her behalf for allowing Andrew Berg to comment on anything at all, and that if Andrew insists on being a snob, he can start his own damn podcast. I don't remember my use of the phrase begs the question, but as I cannot even now confidently assert that I know how to avoid misusing it, I assume Andrew is right. But so is Emily. Start the podcast, Andrew. Live the dream. Until next time, from Chicago, Illinois, where the mafia once... Yeah, we don't, we, we, we don't talk about the mafia. This has been The Constant. Oh boy.